Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, if you're an entrepreneur or a wantrepreneur, you need to listen to this episode with my brother, Jeff Lerner. He's somebody that when I have questions, that's who I go to. He's the Swiss Army knife of entrepreneurship. He's helped over 150,000 people with their businesses. I think he's going to be the new best-selling author. I'm waiting on his book now. He's done it all. He's a father, a husband. Jeff, welcome to the show. I'm so grateful for you, brother. Oh, Richard, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here as well, and I'm so excited to uh, connect with you as well as your audience. So uh, talk to us a little bit about you know, where you come from, where'd you grow up, and how'd you become the man that you are today? <laughs> how long you got? That's a big question. Um, and I appreciate, I appreciate you giving me credit for, for being a man. Thank you. Thank you. Um, no, so yeah, I'm from Houston, Texas originally. Um, I grew up, I, you know, I am so blessed in so many ways I, I grew up and, and I think the first blessing of my life was who, who I was born to. My parents were incredible role models. Uh, they were both what I would call true self-made people. Uh, they came from both my mom and my dad. Uh, they came from really saw, you know, working class, my uh, very intelligent families. My dad's dad was a chemist and his mom was a sculptor and visual artist. And then my mom's dad was a geologist and her mother, um, she ended up being a homemaker. But during World War II, she was actually uh, General Eisenhower's secretary. Wow. When he was stationed, uh, for, she was British, but I, somehow when Eisenhower was like working out of the UK, she was like his secretary or something anyways. And that's how, that's how they met. Uh, my, my grandfather was a, like a Lieutenant and he walked into do to general Eisenhower's office and like had a thing for the secretary. So, so anyway, I, I come from, I call it good stock, right? I mean, solid working class families. And then my parents, they just, they worked hard. They, they put themselves through school. They worked multiple jobs. They met each other. They built a life together. They were only, you know, they were married for almost 60 years. My mom passed a, a couple of years ago and uh, my mom was an attorney and my dad was a, a financial manager, money manager. And, um, you know, they put me through a good school and they, but m more than anything, they just showed me that if you work hard and you're consistent and you play the long game, really cool, you can build a really cool life for yourself. Right. And they also, I think they did this very artful job of, of giving me a fair amount of comfort and security as a child, but, but not so much that I could take it for granted. Like I, I didn't, I didn't end up, I think, you know, lazy or, or, um, entitled. It was kind of like, Hey, you're going to have a good life till you're 18. We're going to make sure of that. But when you turn 18, you're going to be expected to do what we did. Right. And so that's that was my origin, and and to this date, I'll say that I I was given, in a sense, I think I was given all you need, which is good role models. Like, we live in a world where you can do so much if you just go out there and do it, and just don't wait and don't expect, um, or, or expect you know expect a lot, but expect it from yourself, right? Not from everyone else or everything else. And, uh, and yeah, so, you know, I guess from there, I managed to muck things up like we do when we're young. I, I dropped out of high school, my junior year of high school, because I was always getting in trouble. And I would say that first and foremost, probably the defining conflict of my life 
I think, and, and I think every good story has a defining conflict. Yeah. Um, the defining conflict of my life has been my, my sort of mistrust of and disdain for what I call, what I'll just call the system. I, I looked at, you know, my parents, they did really, really well sort of playing with in, playing inside the system. You know, they followed the rules. They did what you're supposed to do. And they, and they received a lot of benefit from that. But I remember having this sense when I was young and I remember my parents even told me at a certain point, they would, they would make comments about how the world, the world that I was growing up in wasn't the same as the world that they were growing up in. They grew up in a world. And, and I, I suspect a lot of your audience will resonate with this. Like, you know, my parents now, they, my dad's 76, right? They're in like mid seventies. I think for that generation, you grew up in a world where following the rules, there was a, there was a really good payoff opportunity for following the rules, right? Like you could get a reasonably affordable college education. You know, my parents went to college in the what late sixties, like it was reasonable back then. Right. And then you could like get in and, and, and work a job, What's up? I see our buddy Liam is saying, what's up? I, I, I'm excited to say, say hi to him. What's up, Liam? Um, and then you could like get a job back then, let's say in the 70s, and one company for multiple decades and build up a good retirement. Maybe it's a 401k, maybe it's a pension. Like, like the system, the system worked. The, the American dream was a solvent promise back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But, but when I was going to school in the 90s, for whatever reason, and part of it's because my dad was a money manager, and so we would sit and watch the economic news. Like, my dad had a Bloomberg terminal in, in our house, you know, pre-internet. And, like, we would watch um, the world, and he would explain to me how the world worked. And I, had, I just had this sort of, like, impending sense that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. And so... Long story short, when I was 16, uh, right before my 17th birthday, junior year of high school, I dropped out and I said, I don't want to do this anymore because I, I feel like I'm just being trained to go get a job and I don't see the payoff because my dad had taught me how to do financial math. And I remember saying, I remember having this conversation with my dad where I was like, dad, it seems like, it seems like in order to retire, by the time I'm 65, in order to retire, I'm probably going to need to have like, you know, I don't know, 10 or $20 million at least, or else I'm not even going to be able to afford like a decent life. And he's like, well, son, you know, I kind of did the same math and, I, and I'm not sure you're wrong. And I was like, well, then what's the point? Go make $80,000 a year. That's not going to get me there. And so, and, and it wasn't about the money. It was about the trade. Like if I'm going to trade my time, and I'm going to trade my life. I'm going to trade the best time of my life for some sort of deferred payoff. Like I'm willing to do that if the deferred payoff is going to be all that, if it's, if it's what I saw my parents go out and get. But, you know, I bet you right now, if we were to, if we were to poll your audience and say, hey, who feels like they're trading or they traded the best years of their life or the most energized and, and, and capable years of their life in terms of the energy and the industry to go do work. And they did it on the basis of a trade that hasn't quite panned out in terms of getting that ultimately achieve a great quality, a great worry-free quality of life. I think most people would agree that nowadays the system doesn't do what it's supposed to do for people. 
And for whatever reason, I kind of had that insight at a younger age. Plus, I was just sort of fundamentally rebellious and mistrustful. And, uh, you know, I exited the system when I was 16 and I became a jazz musician, I, a self-taught jazz musician. I played piano for 10 years and I had great fun and I uh, was, you know, got to be creative and got to make music and be personally expressed. And, and, and that part was great, but being poor kind of sucks. And, you know, jazz musician, there's, there's not really a, a, probably the only thing I could have done to be poorer than being a jazz musician would have been like being an actor or something like it's pretty bad. And uh, so, and the irony of it is I was playing piano in the homes very often of very, very wealthy people. I would get hired to come in and play a private party. I literally played for half a dozen billionaires. I could name them to you. They're, they, these are like, I, I played for three owners of professional sports franchises in their homes. And so I was exposed to an extraordinary amount of wealth while simultaneously living very little of it myself. And, and that juxtaposition, what I came to realize is, hey, musicians aren't the only ones that get to create for a living. There is this other group of people called entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And unlike my peers, some of them are billionaires. They're the ones hiring me. So maybe... Instead of playing music for the rest of my life, I could learn this other, this other, you know, think I, I literally started to think of it as a different type of an orchestra, right? Like a, a business is like an orchestra. It's all these different people that have all these different roles. And there's a person that learns how to coordinate them and keep the time and tell them what it's supposed to sound like and build the drama and, and steer the ship, so to speak. And that instead of producing sound, you produce you know, products and services and profits and jobs and all this amazing stuff that moves the world around. And I just became fascinated with, with the, you know, what I viewed as sort of an, an overlap of an art and a science, much like music is. And that's how I came to see business. And, uh, and, and you know, it had the ancillary benefit, uh, opportunity, at least, of, of not having to be poor your whole life. And so I became an entrepreneur in my 20s. And while I was still supporting myself playing gigs, uh, I started also starting businesses and, you know, my book kind of picks that story up and runs with it. But ultimately, that's what led me here. I've been an, I've been a full time entrepreneur now for uh, about 15 years. I've been a part time entrepreneur for over 20 years. And it took a, about a dozen businesses and about a decade before I actually got something to work. So it was not like an overnight success at all. But uh, you asked about, you, you, you know, obviously this show is like devoted to resilience yeah. And I think that uh, I was a very resilient entrepreneur. You know, I, I kept going until and eventually, you know, the only way you truly fail is to stop trying. And so back in the day, and uh, I know you've worked a lot of you did a lot of different things. Um, you worked with Google, correct? Well, so I was when I start, I mean, I never formally worked with with Google Corporation, but I was. I became an affiliate marketer in 2008. That was the first thing that I did online in terms of digital business. That was really my first business that I, I, I had a big win with. And from 2008 to 2012, I was an affiliate marketer. And in late 2010, early 2011, Google started to slowly modify the way their platform worked with affiliates. Um, and that created some challenges for me, which ultimately led me to leave affiliate marketing and start a digital agency in 2013. 
But for the better part of four or five years, I was an affiliate marketer who was generating the majority of his income by running ads on the Google platform. So I became very, very uh, technically proficient with Google ads, which, which I still am to this day. And you won like five or six different awards also. Wow. Yeah, it, it's crazy. I was actually in 2000, I don't remember if it was 2009 or 2010, um, I was actually ranked number 281 in the world on the list of people who, quote, worked from home, which is not at all a, a, a I mean, it's not like they sampled every single person in the world that worked from home, but basically it was a list of multi-level marketers and direct sale and direct sellers. So it was like the number one guy in Amway or the number one guy in Herbalife and companies like that. But then in 2010 and 11, this new industry of like online, well, it was, it really started before that, but like online marketers or internet marketers started to emerge, right? Where there was suddenly this new class of people that we were sitting at home on our computers, basically, and you know, it, it almost looked like we were just like printing money with our computers because we were selling affiliate products. So we didn't have customers. We didn't have support we had to provide. We didn't even have merchant accounts or billing we had to do. We didn't have, you know, stores or products on the shelf. We were literally just arbitraging clicks and other people's offers using Google ads or uh, Facebook started to emerge around that time, whatever platforms we were using. And basically people would just deposit money in our bank accounts. And so that kind of got looped into this work from home, home-based business concept. And I ended up, yeah, I ended up getting voted or, or ranked number 281 in the world uh, on that list. And that was, yeah, that was kind of the first bit of recognition that I got, um, which led to, you know, speaking opportunities, teaching opportunities. I used to mentor a lot of affiliate marketers and uh, yeah, it's kind of, I've started winning what you might call more legitimate, legitimate awards now, like being on the Inc 5000 and stuff. But back then it was, it was a real ragtag scene, you know? But now also, you know, like when, when you were first starting up, it was brand new. So it was probably like the wild, wild west back then. So you, you probably had to put in a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of learning before you made, made your first couple of dollars. And I think now a lot of people, they want to become an entrepreneur because they want to make that money quick. And they don't realize that you got to pay your dues and there's a, a process, correct? Yeah, I think that, you know, I compare, I compare it to fitness a lot. You know, a lot of it, like if, if your goal is, let's say you're, I would say getting rich is like having a six pack in, in a certain way. Like for the average person, it's going to take a whole lot of work and a whole lot of modifications to various parts of their lives to really have like etched abs, like to be able to see all six abdominal muscles, right? Like now, if somebody's already in really good shape, they may not need to do as much work. They may just need to tweak their diet or they may, they may just need to up their cardio, right? And so, you know, I think there tends to be this, this desire to compare. And so I, I'll, to this day, I still have never had a great six pack, but I have made a lot of money. And what I'll say is, I, when I started marketing online in 2008, look at my story or hear my story and they go, and they, they do see that it happened for me pretty quickly, right? By like, like it took about eight months for me to go from broke 
and, and in a lot of financial trouble because I had other businesses that had failed. And then all of a sudden I was making really good money and I was starting to pay off my debt. And that took about seven or eight months. And I think a lot of people will look at that and say, oh, well, well, how come, you know, like it, it's like it's like they think that I, I was the equivalent of going from like 400 pounds to like having a six pack in like eight months. But the reality is that was my 12th business. And I had been failing at business for 13 years. So even though I was failing, I was learning. I knew a lot about running business. And that's, I think that's the thing that's missed in the story is like, I had 13 years of starting businesses, learning sales, you know, whether it was going, doing door-to-door -door sales or, you know, dealing with mortgages and learning how to process things or, or managing my own time or learning how to set up merchant accounts or teaching myself the Adobe Creative Suite so that I could design my own images and my own logos and build my own funnels and teaching myself rudimentary technology back then like HTML and JavaScript and CSS and some PHP. Like I had been accumulating skills for 13 years through failure after failure after failure. And I was a professional improviser who was very comfortable living out on a high wire, so to speak, because I was a jazz musician. I made up solos on the fly for a living and I had conditioned my brain to be able to stay in that creative zone for very long periods of time and to be listening to the cues of other musicians. So I had a lot of mental discipline. I had a lot of skill sets. I had a lot of technical experience. I had a lot of things going for me that allowed me to look like an overnight success. But those things were 13 years in the making. So I'm like the equivalent of the guy that's already in pretty good shape and goes in and gets a six pack pretty quickly, right? And then you got some guy who's 400 pounds and says, well, I heard you can get a six pack in six months because Jeff Lerner did it. You see, you see the metaphor here? Yeah, I think people have to be more honest about where they are starting out and stop trying to, to, to arbitrarily determine a timeline based on somebody else's experience. And frankly, most of what people go through, you'll never see and you'll never know. So the idea of comparison is honestly, it's, it's pretty ridiculous and it does nobody any favors. You know, and I love that. Um, like, like my friend, Steve Sims has a book called blue fishing. Oh yeah. I love Steve. He's and a he talk, friend of mine too. Yeah. You know, and he talks about how, you know, like you said, you had 13 years, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, you're going to lose a lot of money, but that's just the cost of doing business. That's the cost of getting an education. And a lot of people don't think, well, I shouldn't lose any money. Well, eventually you, you're going to, you're going to lose money. Every, every business does. But I think a yeah. lot of people get, they get scared away once they start losing a little bit and then they yeah, quit. Let me, let me give some context on that. So I figure I, I, and I talk about this in my book in my twenties, I probably made about half a million dollars as a musician, which is not a great, I mean, you know, across 10, 10 years. Right. So it's like 50 grand a year, let's say on average. I'm willing to bet that I lost half of that trying to start businesses. I think I was losing about $25,000 a year in my 20s, trying different businesses. You know, some of it's just cost of doing business, opportunity cost, whatever, however you want to quantify it. I probably spent a quarter million dollars on my real world education of failing at business. But you know what else costs a quarter million dollars? A Harvard education. And do you know what the average Harvard graduate is earning 12 years after they graduate from Harvard? 
$87,000 a year. In other words, you go borrow a quarter million dollars to get an undergraduate degree from Harvard, which is about $50,000, $60,000 a year right now. Spend four years there, graduate. 12 years later, you're making $87,000 a year. That's your payoff for a Harvard degree. So I spent the same amount of money losing. I lost the same amount of money on businesses that I would have spent on a degree from Harvard. 12 years later, I was making a lot more than $87,000 a year. So like who made the smarter trade, me or the guy that goes to Harvard? Now, is there, some, is there less certainty around my outcome than his? Yeah, in a way, but here's some other statistics for you. 21% of business, businesses fail in the first year. 50% of businesses fail in the first five years. People think, oh my gosh, 50% of businesses fail in the first five years. Yeah, but how about this? Of the 50%, so, so listen to this. 45% of all people that start a business or own a business eventually become a millionaire. So if 50% of people, and that's, the, let, let me actually back that up. There's 31 million businesses in the United States and roughly 14 million of them, uh, 14 million business owners in the United States are millionaires. So if 14 million business owners out of 31 million businesses, that's roughly 45%. Well, clearly, it's none of the people that are going out of business in the first five years are the ones becoming millionaires. It's the people that are staying in business because you don't, you don't become a millionaire by not staying in business, right? So let's do the math real quick. If 50% of business owners are failing in the first five years and 45% of business owners are becoming millionaires, then what percentage of business owners who don't fail in the first five years go on to become millionaires? 45 out of 50, 90%. There's a 90% probability that if you just hang in there for more than five years and don't quit because the only failure, true, truly failing just means I stop trying in business, hang in for more than five years, by my math, there's a nine out of 10 chance of becoming a millionaire. Now who's the dummy? Me or the guy that goes to Harvard? I love it. Uh, and... Um... First, I want to thank our sponsors because um, obviously he's on right now. Um, Christopher Celeste and Liam Wisner of OVF. Um, when I met them and I joined Operation Veteran Freedom, I had no idea what evergreen meant. I had no idea what uh, what even a funnel meant. Hey. And they took me under their wing. Um, I took their 12-week course. I invested in them. They invested in me. So I want to thank them. They, they actually made my book hit number one twice on Amazon. Our podcast is now in the top 0.5% in the world. So I want to thank Liam wow. Weiser, Christopher Celeste of Operation Veteran Freedom. I also want to thank our sponsors, Vertical Momentum Coffee. If you guys love coffee, I made a coffee that's twice the energy, no crash, but 100% of the proceeds go to help veterans struggling with PTSD and homelessness. So if you love coffee with a mission, check out the coffee. So I just want to thank those two people without Christopher, without um, Liam, this show is not possible and I wouldn't be able to do what I do. And they have nothing but glowing praise for you, for you, Jeff. Well, those are such good guys. I, we saw Liam leave, uh, make a comment earlier on YouTube and I'm, I'm so grateful. I think, correct me if I'm wrong. I think Chris is the one that, that connected us. Yep. Christopher is the one that connected yeah. us. Yeah. 
yeah, they're such great guys and I'm grateful for, for them in my life and I'm grateful they connected me with you. And if they're watching, I love you guys. I love it. So now, we, since you first became an entrepreneur, the landscape has changed. Um, yeah. Like for me, I was with GNC for over 30 years. So I was in the health and fitness industry and now it's totally different. I think I think almost 60% of all stores are closed because everything moved online. Yeah. yeah. So please talk about the new the new landscape of business and digital. Yeah. So I mean, this is a, a huge part of my book. You know, I'm a I'm a pragmatist. I, I've been I've been rich and I've been poor. And you become a very practical person when you deeply experience both of those realities because you you know what a difference money makes right like there's no there's no uh moralizing or or being you know holier than thou about it the reality is life without money is like pragmatically very hard and life with it doesn't mean it solves all the problems but it'll solve every problem that money can solve and that's a lot of the problems and so uh you know, I, as a practical reality in, in my book, like I'm all about people having this great life. And, and, and you know, I, I use this term awesome life and, you know, being fulfilled and finding their purpose and, you know, some sort of, you know, call them more opaque concepts. But the reality is to unlock your potential, which that's the name of my book, Unlock Your Potential, you kind of got to have some money. And I believe in the modern world, uh, the really, uh, in, in fact, you know, what? I'm just going to, I'm going to dig into it. There's basically, I have a three tier process, a three tier approach to making money in this world. You asked about the digital landscape, like the kind of the digital economy. I'm going to say where I think that fits into the larger question of, you know, let's. Is it fair to assume that a good portion of your, your listeners would love to have an answer to the question of what should I do to go make more money? Okay, then, then with your permission, I'm going to answer your question about the digital economy in the context of a larger answer to that question of what should I do to go make more money? Let's roll, baby. Let's roll. Okay, okay. So I approach it this way. There's kind of like a cascade. And it, again, it depends on your starting point, right? If you're trying to get a six pack, it helps to know if you're, if you're 400 pounds or if you're, you're already 10% body fat, right? So depending on your starting point, this is how I approach it. If you're already financially comfortable, meaning like you're not stressing about paying your bills and you have six figures, liquid, investable capital to deploy, then I actually think probably the best area to play in is, is physical real estate. Like, I think you can go do some serious damage, especially if you got multiple six figures. Like if, you, if your income needs are met and you got a couple hundred grand to work with, I don't know, go, go build out an Airbnb, go try to acquire a, a duplex or a fourplex. Like physical real estate is a great game if you got enough monopoly money, right? But a lot of people don't. So where do we go then? So then from there, you drop down to, I would say if you have between 10 and 100,000, so, and, and you're not desperate, like you're, you know, you're not going to, get foreclosed on or evicted in the next 60 days or whatever. So your basic financial needs are met, like you're stable and you have between 10 and a hundred thousand dollars to work with. This is where I think the digital economy is this, 
is this never seen before opportunity in human history. Like it's always, you know, they, they say it takes money to make money, right? And it always has. And if you had enough, I mean, I guess if we go back far enough, it doesn't matter. Like then you had to be like a, a lord or a noble and it didn't matter if you were a serf or a peasant or whatever. But like certainly in the last 100, 200 years, if you had enough money, you could go play the game and make more money with your money, right? Maybe that meant business. Maybe that meant real estate. Maybe that meant some kind of other, you know, speculation or whatever. Um, but if you had less than, let's say, the whatever the modern or the, the older equivalent of 100 grand is, there, you just didn't have enough money to really go get critical mass and to access some of the best opportunities out there. I mean, even now, a lot of the best investment opportunities are only available to accredited investors. A lot of the things that can pay you 20, 25% a year, which by the way, in an era where we, we now see, you know, eight, 9% inflation, which I don't think is going to be an anomaly moving forward. You know, you have to be making 10 or 15% a year on your money or else you're actually just losing money. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what opportunity is there now for a person who doesn't have a hundred grand or more to work with to actually still go make 10% plus on their money? It's business, but it's digital business, right? You know, GNC, you probably know how much did you used to have to lick, you know, in terms of net worth and capital to invest to get a GNC franchise? It was a lot of money back then. It was, it was more than six figures, right? Yeah. So that's kind of my point. If you have more than six figures, there are both business and real estate opportunities that are great for you. But I think what the internet economy has done is it's opened up the opportunities of business ownership and entrepreneurship to people that don't actually have as much cushion or margin or capital to play with. Now, it doesn't mean you can be dead broke. Like if you're, if you, if, you know, sadly, if you're, you know, homeless or you've lost your job and you're going to lose your apartment and you're trying to make, you know, figure something out. I am not at all saying like, go bet it all on a Shopify store or something. You know, you got to have some stability to build a business from because business is, you know, business is, is a, a delayed gratification prospect. Like you're going to have to put something in for a while before you get something out. You don't want to be doing that in a place when you're desperate in your life. But again, I think that's what the digital economy has opened up for people is in that you know, and these numbers are rough. I mean, it depends on your situation, but if you have, let's say five to low six figures, you can go out and, and build a hell of a business on the internet now without having to hire employees, without having to stock inventory, without having to sign a lease, without having to do a build out, without having to do all this expensive stuff you used to have to do. Now, if you, if you only have a couple nickels to rub together, then, you know, I realize somebody might be listening going, well, I don't even have that much money then what you got to do is you got to develop skills that put you in the sales or marketing game. So if you're hearing this and you're like, I only have $500 to my name, then I am not saying you should go start an online business, but I am saying you should start learning the skills that ultimately will allow you to start an online business. And in the meantime, you can get paid probably more for those skills than, than any other skills or whatever else you're doing for a living. So go learn to build funnels. Go learn to write sales copy. Go learn to run online ads on Facebook or Google or TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat or something. Go learn some of the most valuable sa or, or sales. Just learn how to pick up a phone and get somebody to buy something in an ethical way. You start learning sales and marketing skills then you immediately lever up the value of your time. Now you can get enough money by trading what you know how to do to actually go out and build something that you can own on the internet 
And then you do that to get enough money to lever up into starting to build physical businesses or physical assets. That's how that cascade works. And why I believe in, in, in the westernized world, if you have access to the internet, you can climb up out of any hole anywhere. You know, basically you just need an internet connection and a device. And, you know, that's something uh, I, I've learned from um, Christopher and Liam and also from my friend Dennis Yu. He oh, talks, yeah. um, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of you can get do a, do, a dollar a day ads on Facebook yeah. and just to get just to get get your things out there and start learning how to to write copy. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that Christopher and Liam taught me is that, you know, people buy because of emotion. And in order to get emotion, you have to learn how to write good copy. So I think a lot of people should, before they start a business, they definitely should take some courses of learning how to write good copy. Yeah, I mean, there's there's books. Look, one, one of the books that completely changed my life is a book called Influence by Robert Cialdini. And there's a lot of good books on copywriting and persuasion. But I mean, just go buy the book Influence for whatever. You can get it on, on Amazon for eight bucks or something. And don't just read it once. I read the book Influence six times in three months because I wanted those concepts. I wanted to know those concepts like I know my middle name. I wanted to know those concepts like I know my social security number. I wanted those. I remember I wanted to get those concepts so embedded into my mind. I wanted them in my DNA. Like, and now I, I mean, I'm a pretty, I'm, I am pretty skilled in the art of persuasion because I, it's not just that you can say, Hey Jeff, what are the six psychological principles of persuasion? And I can recite them to you. It's because I do them automatically. I don't even have to think at this point to engage the principle of reciprocity or, you know, to know that, Hey, this offer will perform better if I can pull in some social proof or like, it just becomes natural to you, but you gotta, you gotta get passionate about this stuff. Right. And to me, and and this, you know, I don't know, just a question. I look at the things that people spend their time doing. And I think if people actually knew that the opportunities exist in this world to learn certain skills and monetize them and go out and, and actually start getting the resources to create the life that you want. If people really knew and believed that that was true, 90% 90% of what we do with our spare time I, I would become completely unjustifiable in terms of like, like how could you justify playing a video game if you're not already where you want to be in life, knowing that you could be spending that time to acquire skills that could get you where you want to go in life. And I'm talking video games. I'm talking streaming television. I'm talking going to see movies. I'm talking watching sports. I'm talking browsing social media. How would we justify any of this stuff? Again, if you're already ever exactly where you want to be in this world, then I, sure, what else, you know, what do you, you know, what is there to work for? I don't know. But even then it's like, we could be with our loved ones. There's like relationships we could be investing in. But the reality is most people are not where they want to be in this world. And they are, they are, they are either skills or relationships away from getting where they want to go in this world, which means I think the biggest question most people need to ask is like, why am I spending my time this way? Because there's not time to do both. You can't, you can't have seven hours a day of screen time and go build the kind of relationships that are going to get you to millionaire opportunities. You can't have seven hours a day of screen time and 
unless it's screen time learning these skills, but that's clearly, that's not what most people are doing with their screen time, you know, but you can't be spending, you can't be spending seven hours a day on TikTok and becoming a proficient copywriter. And, and that's, that's my biggest challenge in this world. And that's ultimately, if I was going to say, what is, if there's any one thing I'm trying to do in this world, it's to get people to really, really take a hard look at what they're doing with their time. Cause I think virtually everyone on this earth to build any life they want, if they'll just start. And, you know, I think like that's something that my friend Russell Brunson talked, told me, taught me was, I think my, my life in business started to change when I decided to become a social media creator instead of a consumer. Yeah. Oh, so good. You know what I mean? Cause I, a lot of times I would just be sitting there flipping, flipping and flipping. And I'm like, I wasted four hours that I could be, like you said, learning copyright or watching Dan Locke videos just to learn how to do, you know, copyrights and stuff like that. But one thing that I love, cause what happened was I took their course for, it was a 12 week course in, in OVF and I took it because I thought they were full of shit. I'm like, there's no, there's no way this stuff works, but I'm just going to call them out. I took the course and then like right after the course ended, my father passed and I had to go away for a couple of weeks. And as I'm away, all of a sudden I'm getting money in my checking account. Money starts flowing yeah. at 24 hours a day. And I was like, wow, it is the real deal. You know, evergreen products actually is making me money 24 hours a day where when I was with GNC, once the door closed, that was it. Mm -hmm. You, you know? know, I love that you talked about the difference between being a social media. You know, I, I talk about consumer versus producer. And I'm going to use kind of a crude example to illustrate this point, but I, I hope you'll come with me on it. And, and at least somebody out there is probably going to think this is kind of funny. So like, when you're a teenager, like be honest, and, and I hope Chris and Liam are listening because I know they'll, I, I think they'll appreciate this. When you're a teenager, like, did you ever have that conversation with your guy friends, like your guy teenage friends, or, or when you're like 14, like really immature, right? Where you're like, when I grow up, I'm going to be a gynecologist so I can, you know, check out naked chicks all day, right? Now, we both know that. Being a gynecologist is like the least sexual, least erotic thing you could possibly do, right? Like it is, it is just like, at that point, it's just like flesh. It's just meat. It's just your job. <laughs> so for, forgive me for saying it this way. That is what social media becomes when you become a producer of it rather than a consumer. I think I honestly look at my Instagram feed now the way a gynecologist looks at a naked woman. There is, it has no hold on me. It is not in, like a, enticing to me at all. I have so little interest in browsing the feed because it, I have objectified it. It has just become work. Yeah. And, and I'm like, that is honestly the biggest value of becoming a social media producer yeah. is it has taken this thing that has this allure, this grip, this attraction for so many people. And it's like, I see it for what it is now. Like, oh, wait, this is a mechanism for grabbing people's attention and taking control of it so that we, the producers, can get what we want from them, the consumers. Now, I happen to believe very much in what it is that I'm producing. And I think that it, 
I, yourself and myself and Chris and Liam and, and those of us out there that do, you know, that are actually putting out good, valuable content for people. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I still think we're the best thing inside of a terrible thing. Because what it's doing for most people, what, what is being produced for most people and what most people are consuming and what they're giving up in the process, it's a pretty terrible cycle. And it's, it's draining so much potential out of so many people's lives. And I personally, for one, am just so grateful that I've objectified my feed to the point where it holds no interest. Last week, I told my team, hey guys, I got to take a break from creating content because I got some other projects I got to work on. And I literally haven't even logged into social media in a week. And it's like, I don't even think to do it because I don't have any work to do in there right now, you know? And, uh, and I think that if people could, you know, again, I think there's sort of a, there's sort of an unholy Trinity of like television, video games, and social media. And if people could just reframe and objectify those relationships and, and I kind of lump sports in with that because most of the time we consume sports through those channels. Like, what could you do with that time? And I think, I think a lot of people just don't believe there's something that great they could do with that time because otherwise it's hard for me to understand why they wouldn't want to make that trade unless it's just chemical dependency at this point. Yeah, and like and I was talking to somebody last night at a barbecue and I was telling them, you know, the phone is the new TV. It's the new radio. Like when we were growing up, our parents would be sitting there with their newspaper overlooking the TV. The phone right. is the new TV. And a, a lot of people don't realize, you know, I didn't realize how much the world depends on this little box that we're, we're looking at right now. And I think I was talking to somebody, they were talking about money and business. I'm like, but you could be making money on Amazon instead of bitching about it. Yeah. You having products on Amazon. You know what I mean? So I have a question now. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a retired veteran. And when I got out, because I got, I got hurt on duty and I lost my vision, um, mm. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know about starting. They don't teach you anything when you're about to get out of the military. So you get out of the military, you don't have a job, you don't have money anymore, and you, you don't have a mission. So what would you suggest to the guys and girls that are getting out of the military and want to be an entrepreneur? Where do you start? Well, I think you, I, I think there's two ways to answer that question. And, and, and they're probably both essential parts of the answer. And, and one is you touched on it. You don't have a mission and you, you, and I've heard this so many, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm I know Chris, I know Liam. Uh, I have other friends that are, are ex-military that have gone into the entrepreneurship route. And I've heard, I've been around a lot of conversations about not just the loss of of mission, but I mean, that's a huge one, right? You lose your, you lose your mission. You lose your sense of, of brotherhood and camaraderie with your, uh, your, your fellow, you know, military soldiers and such. You, you lose that. There, there's an environment. I mean, the military environment is very different than like going and getting a job at some fortune 500 company where you, you, you know, put on a suit and clock in every day and kind of live in this sterile environment. Like, like I just hear a lot about the transition mm -hmm. being so difficult. And I do think entrepreneurship is a very, very good, conceptually, it is, a, it is probably an easier transition, a more logical transition in a lot of ways than going to work in a corporate job for, for a veteran. 
Um, but I, I think there's there's a couple things about it. One is like nobody's going to give you orders. You're you're the general, and you're also the private. Like you're every you, you got to figure it out, right? And it's the battle plan is yours to figure out. And but but what I th where I think it starts to your point is figuring out the mission. Like it is, and I don't think this is unique to veterans. I actually think veterans are blessed that at one point in their life, they were given a very clear, passionate mission. Sadly, most people, they, they, don't, they don't live a day in their life with a clear cut mission. Their mission is just like, well, I think I'm supposed to make some money and I'm supposed to like, you know, be a decent husband and a decent father. And I'm supposed to like play with my kids and I'm supposed to put them through school and I'm supposed to drive a car and I'm supposed to have a mortgage and I'm supposed to like have a job so people don't think I'm a bum and I'm supposed to, but like, that's not a mission. A mission is like, why the hell are you on this earth? Mm. What are you doing that really matters? What were you What were you uniquely created for and tasked to do in this world that, that not everybody else could, right? That's a mission. And most people don't ever have a mission. I think veterans are lucky enough to have one for a while which is what makes it so hard when they lose it because they've tasted what mission driven life is like. And then, and then suddenly they don't have it anymore. And so I think it's real. I mean, so this is, I'm, I'm saying this for veterans, but I'm really saying it for everyone. Come up with a mission that matters. Why are you here? And, and frankly, I know guy, you know, guys like yourself and, and Chris and Liam and a lot of veterans whose mission has become helping other veterans through this reintegration through this, this adaptation. And I think that's an incredible mission. And I'm, I'm excited to be aligned with their mission. I have my own mission, which is helping wake people up to a lot of the stuff that we're talking about in this world, right? But when you have a mission, like I don't actually think it's possible to be depressed when you have a mission, when you have like a big enough mission. I mean, I, I can't speak for everyone, but like, I don't know how to get depressed anymore. I don't really know how to have bad days because even on a bad day, it's still worthy struggle because the mission is worthy, right? So anyway, I think that's part of it. And then I think there's, there's the more tactical side of it, which is like, okay, well, a mission is great, but just like in the military, they don't just give you a mission. They also like teach you a lot of skills, right? You got to have skills. And I think, I think you got to ask the question, okay, what are the skills? You know, I had certain skills. Environment what are the skills that are going to make me very well suited in a, you know, civilian capitalist environment? And there's a, there's a, there are a few different clusters of skill sets, but again, it's going to be around marketing. It's going to be around sales. It's probably going to be around finance. It could be around people operations and leadership. Like there are certain skills that have high commercial utility in the modern world and I think when you couple those with a worthy mission, which very often those two things will dovetail in some sort of entrepreneurship, you can recapture a lot of what you feel like you've lost coming out of the military. Only now it's, it's all within your control because you're the general every day you wake up. You know, and I love that now before, like when I first got into entrepreneurship, I used to joke every time, you know, when every guy that gets out of the military wants to start a t-shirt company hat company, coffee company, or liquor company. And I did all, all I did three of them. <laughs> but, you know, when in the military, you're taught how to do a, um, you know, standard operation procedure. Mm -hmm. And it seems that I've, to people that have failed in business that I know, they never had a SOP. Oh, for yeah. The, 
business. They never had a, a business plan. Like my, my friend Stephen Eugene Kuhn from, uh, from one of my groups says, if you don't have a business plan, you don't have a business, you have a hobby. And a lot of times somebody will start a company and then six months later, they're $10,000 in debt. Don't know what the hell just happened because they didn't start with a plan before they started their business. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, first of all, I'll just say that I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I experienced, you know, and I'm a slow learner apparently because I had to go through that 11 times actually. And I failed, I failed 11 times. And actually, uh, I will say of my 11 business failures, one of them, I actually did take the time to make a business plan. And, um, probably not surprisingly, that's the one that, that came the closest to succeeding and, and lasted the longest. That was a, a, a mobile marketing company, but no, you're totally right. And I think that, uh, a lot of times entrepreneurship, because it has this really cool visionary kind of creative element, right? Where, especially on the front end, a lot of it is about being able to generate enthusiasm and excitement and attract people and, and attract interest. Like there's a, there's a certain skill set that's kind of a, call it a salesperson skill set, right? It's like, sales and marketing. I know how to get attention. I know how to get people excited about a thing. And so I think there's a tendency to uh, undervalue or, or, or frankly ignore what you're talking about, which is there's, a, there's an engineering side to business too. Like, a, you know, it, it, is, it is very much an art and a science and people tend to naturally be good at one or the other. And so we naturally, I think, want to overdo the thing we're good at and undervalue the thing that we're not. And since entrepreneurship also implies a certain amount of risk, I think if you just, if you look at the types of personalities that are a little more comfortable with risk, they tend to be more of the sales and marketing type of personalities and less of the operations and engineers and scientists types of, you know, more analytical people tend to be better at seeing and thus avoiding risk, right? And so you don't get a lot of really analytical people that are naturally going out and starting businesses. Now, I would argue that they should because they're probably more likely to be successful because they'll actually make a plan to your point. But I think a lot of it is just a personality thing. The people that like to go out and start businesses that have that natural enthusiasm that gets you from zero to one, that gets a thing off the ground when, when nobody else is into it. Because you know, on day one, you're having to transfer your belief and your excitement about a thing over to other people. And that's not necessarily something that a lot of analytical people are good at. So I think a lot of analytical people have trouble visualizing how they would start. But then I think a lot of the visionary and, and sales type people, they, they can see themselves starting, but they fail to, they fail to appreciate what it's actually going to take to keep going and to be successful and to grow. And that's for that, you're going to need a plan. And so you know, ideally you're one of the few people that are great at and willing to do both, or you find a partner that's strong where you're weak, or at the very least you listen to a podcast like this and you go, okay, whichever one I'm not naturally good at, I need to invest some time in and, and know that you can do things that you're not good at there. It's just going to take longer. Right. Like a guy like me, I'm not terribly good by nature at making plans. I'm very good by nature at like taking action, getting people excited, you know, 
I'm good at, I'm good at launching. I'm not good at building, but that doesn't mean I can't do it. It just means I have to slow down and take more time to do it. Right. And, and again, I failed 11 times before I finally got that memo and was like, okay, I can't just go start running ads without a budget. You know, that, that right there, like before you run ads, make a budget. And, uh, and before you, before you start doing something that you don't know how to do, make a learning plan, try to learn, learn enough about the thing, not to at least identify what are the things that I need to improve at and then pause, make a learning plan. How am I going to gather the knowledge and skills to develop those abilities to be able to be successful at the thing? And it might be that before you actually do the thing, you need to spend a year learning the thing. Yeah. But again, like if you're just always rushing into this stuff, I mean, you know, I mean, that's probably one thing veterans will understand is like, you don't just, you don't just storm the beach without a plan. That doesn't go very well. Right. Yeah. So well, yeah, anyway, one, one thing <laughs> I think for me, I had to humble myself, you know, I, here I am a 53 year old guy mm -hmm. and I got young bucks like Christopher and Liam, you know, I got shoes older than them and I had to go for help and say, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. Please help me. And I think sometimes we have to humble ourselves and become teachable. You know, yeah. and I think that a lot of people, they, they think they, they know it all until they don't know it all. Like they taught me, you have to know your analytics. And yeah. I never knew what even analytics meant. But, you know, because I guess like Jim Rohn said, it, you know, if you're if, if you're selling to everybody, you're selling to nobody. Yeah. So please talk a little bit about getting, you know, humbling yourself and finding mentors but also, you know, getting to know your your business analytics. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that, again, I think that the best training that I ever had for entrepreneurship was my, my training as a jazz musician. And the really nice, you know, the reason I say that is because jazz is this beautiful hybrid, this beautiful blend of structure and form and rules, but also freedom and expression and interpretation and creativity, right? So like when I play a, a piece of music, I always know what key I'm in. I always know what time, what the time signature I'm playing. And I always know what notes are supposed to be sharp and what notes are supposed to be flat. And in fact, my, the starting point for competence as a jazz musician is a very sophisticated theoretical understanding of music. Like without getting too geeky, it's like if you say, hey, we're in D major and I say, okay, well, I want to I wanna modulate to the flat six, which is a B flat major, then I need to play a dominant chord on the F, which is the minor third. And depending on the tone, if I want to do an alt voicing, then I need to sharp the fifth on the F, which is a C sharp or a D flat, which is actually a major seventh interval in the home key of D. And like, like, Anyway, I'm not trying to get all geeky and weird, but my point is as I'm playing, all of that's going through my head. But it's going so fast because I've learned this stuff to the point where I've actually forgotten it. It's probably no different than like a pilot in the military who's like, I mean, forgive me, I'm, I'm like quoting Top Gun, but he's like, I'm switching to guns because in his mind, something changed and he's like, oh, this is going to be that kind of engagement where I can't use missiles, I can use guns. But like, it's all, he's still processing. It's just all happening super fast, right? That's the equivalent of knowing your analytics, right? I think a lot of people 
see an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur running a business, growing a business, scaling a business, and they're making it look easy. They're almost making, but, but they're, and they're making it look casual to a certain degree. That's the way like a pilot makes it look casual. That doesn't mean pilots don't know how the plane works or that they're just kind of making it up as they go. That, that doesn't work, right? And, and, and the stakes are pretty darn high that you don't take that approach because you only get to crash once from what I understand. Yeah. And so I think that with entrepreneurship, now the stakes aren't that high. Like you can, you can fail in business and, and not die. You live to fight another day, right? But you have to take it that seriously. Like it really is like, like flying a plane. Like in my business now, I mean, I know, you know, what, what, so how, do I, how do I know if I had a good day or not, right? I, I have a day. I'm not going, oh, I feel like I made progress today. I'm going, hey, guys, we had a good day because we hit our customer acquisition targets. And we had a certain percentage of people that bought this product and moved to this stage on their way to this milestone within the business. And, you know, we had this opt-in percentage on our on our sales pages. And just recently we pulled upsells out of the funnel, which is increased conversion rates into consumption of the product by a certain amount. And we have, you know, I know what my employee churn was last month. I know what my headcount is this month. I know like, I know what, there's a lot of data. Like I know as many data points in my business as a pilot needs to know about a plane. Right. And, and I think that you can't get caught up in thinking that because somebody's making it look easy, that they aren't thinking about it very, very hard. They've just gotten to the point where they can think about it at that depth and still make it look easy. But that's, you know, I mean, I've been an entrepreneur since, I'm 43, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 16 years old. And it took me 12 years to learn what a, you know, what DPL even meant, that's dollars per lead or, or EPCs, earnings per click. Like, but, but a lot of that is my own stupidity. Why did I wait 12 years? to learn what earnings per click meant? Why did I wait 12 years to learn what customer acquisition costs meant, right? I could have learned, I could have gone and bought like, you know, direct sales or direct marketing for dummies on like day one and learned this stuff. But because I was one of those visionary guys, I was one of those sales and marketing guys, I was one of those men that don't like to ask for directions. I thought, ah, I'll just figure it out. And I literally probably wasted 12 years doing it that way. You know, and I love it because, you know, I'm a big, I love sports. I'm a big sports guy. And I know a lot of guys, they complain about being broke, but they'll always tell you, well, this receiver has seven yards per catch. And you're like, you, so wait, you could learn all those analytics. So why don't right. you learn analytics that's going to make you money? So uh, what made you write your book and put all your thoughts down? What was the thought process in writing your book? Uh, there were a few reasons I did it. Um Part of it is, you know, I, I want to be able to give somebody the whole answer. You know, fundamentally, I'm out there in the market answering this, trying to answer this question. You know, my life has led me to this place where my, my mission is to answer this question for people of how do I unlock the totality of my potential in my life in the modern world? And that's a big question. Now I can make videos and I can host podcasts and I can create training courses and I, I, can, I can put together a lot of different aspects of the answer to that question. But at some point I was like, I would like to be able to give somebody the whole answer. 
And it took a 360 page book to be the whole answer. And, and, and not just the whole answer of what to do or even how to do it, but also why. Not just why you should for your own life, but also the, 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 the justification and the validation to support that I know what I'm talking about. These, these formulas are proven out. They're tested over my life experience and the life experience of others. It's kind of like making, not just making the prescription, but making the case that allows people to believe in the prescription, right? It's like, it's like writing a prescription, but also giving somebody all of the research that got the prescription approved for that condition, right? So that's what this whole book is. It's the whole answer to the question of how do I unlock my potential? How do I create the life that I want in the modern world? And fundamentally, how do I deal with the fact? And this is, this is what makes it urgent. And, and frankly, if it was just what I just said, I might never have written the book because it's a lot of work. But mm. there's an urgency about this. Like we are at a major inflection point, I believe, in history. And I think people feel it in their own lives where, you know, to kind of circle all the way back to where we started this conversation, the, the brokenness of the system, this, this interrelation between our educational system, our, the, what I call the big employment model, you know, go work for a big company and, you know, trust them to take care of you, right? And then ultimately the financial system and the retirement model, those all kind of intertwine together to create the arc of the, of the typical person's life. And frankly, it is revealing itself. It, it, we're starting to see the cracks. Yeah. Most people that work a job are, are, are in, not in any, on any sort of track to ever be able to retire within their lifetimes. Not right now. Most people that are in school, they are actually, it is hard for them to make an economic argument to support you know, people say, oh, well, if you go to college, you'll, you know, over the course of your life, you're going to earn a million extra dollars based on the value of a college degree. Okay, superficially, I'll give you that. But that plays out over 40 years. And frankly, most of the jobs that unlock most of that additional million, they come on the back half of that 40 years. And that's assuming that you're steadily employed that whole time, which is a big if in a market now where the average person changes jobs between every 20 and every 22 months. And also during the front half of that 40 years, you're going to spend 21 years on average paying off your student debt, which, you know, do the, do the compound calculation of the cost, the opportunity cost of paying off student debt instead of making sound investments with that money, coupled with the loss of earning potential on that money over the first 21 years of a 40-year career, and then couple that with the fact that you're probably not having the job consistency necessarily now that leads to that higher earning potential on the back half of the 40 years. I think the economic argument for school is actually pretty darn hard to make now, right? So you've got the employment model breaking down. You've got the education model breaking down. They aren't teaching us, you know, by 2030, a lot of the skills that people are getting degrees for right now and, and especially people coming out of trade schools now, those skills aren't even going to be in demand in the economy because they're going to be done. It's all going to be automation. They're going to be done by machines. I've got in my book, I have a list of almost 100 industries that are going to be gone in the next 10 years. And it's big industries. It's like, like driving trucks and uh, being any sort of a loan officer or a mortgage broker or anybody that's involved in originating financial transactions, gone. Bank tellers, gone. Postal workers, gone. Electricians, mostly gone. Anybody that works in a nuclear plant, gone. 
like on and on and on all these jobs. A lot of the trades are going to be gone. Like, what are we even educating? We don't even know what we're educating people for at this point. We don't need to be teaching people what to do. We need to be teaching people how to learn so that 10 years from now, when it becomes clear what they need to do, they actually know how to learn it in 10 years because we don't even know now, right? So the education model is broken. The employment model is broken. And don't even get me started on the retirement model because that hasn't held water for like probably the last 20 years. And the last time we had a balanced budget in this country was mm -hmm. 2000. And we've been raiding the Social Security Trust ever since. We're, by the way, the second biggest raid in the government is on military retirement benefits. The government has almost a trillion dollars in IOUs to the military retirement. This is what you guys worked for. Yeah. You, put your, you allowed them to not pay you then to save some money so they were going to pay you later. And they raided that shit too. Yeah. Not the Social Security, right? Like... This whole system is, is, is broken. It's a dead man walking 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and maybe it's already happening if there's some alien species observing us going, man, these guys are broken. They're so screwed. They don't even know it. And so that's where the urgency came from. It's like, it's not just that I want to give people the whole answer. I want to give people the whole answer now while they need it and while there's still some time to get some benefit from it. Because honestly... I mean, I don't have to tell everyone the middle class is dying. The middle class is eroding. The middle class is evaporating. The reality is 20 years from now, you're either going to be rich or poor. And I want you to be rich. And I think my book will tell you how to do it. Okay, so now I, I had somebody on and he actually books um, people like Gary Vaynerchuk, people like um, you know Tony Robbins. And he says that only th about 3% of the people that buy a book that go to a course are actually going to act upon it. Yeah. So what, how should they use? Cause I, when I get a book, I actually get the book. And then if they have the audio version, I listen to it at the same time, like I was taught and I actually start using what I'm taught. So how would they go about using your book? Well, I'll tell you straight up. So this book, um, you know, look, it's a complete how to guide. But to your point, it takes a lot more than a how-to guide for most people to, to do the thing and get the result, right? So, you know, it's at the very end of this book. I'll, I'll, I'll literally, I'll show you. So the, the last section of the book, it's kind of the epilogue says, what do I do now? Steps you can take today to start creating your dream life. In other words, at this point, you're 350 pages into this book. I've basically told you everything I know under the sun about how to do it and what to do it. But it basically comes down then like, like your real journey starts after you read the book, reading the book, isn't going to do anything for you. It's just going to give you some stuff to think about. The question is, what do you do after you read the book? And there's two are completely essential. I think to, to get the results out of the book. One is you gotta, you gotta create space in your life to get the results. Like most people, in fact, in fact, I think every person they already have, they're already doing stuff 168 hours a week. Like every hour of every day is already spoken for doing something, whether we're sleeping or we're brushing our teeth or we're watching TV or we're working our job or we're hanging with our friends. Like everybody's already doing something all the time, right? So you get to the end of this book, you're going to, step one is you have to create the space to actually do what the book teaches. And a lot of people talk about planning they, they plan to change their life by going to a seminar or reading a book or listening to a new podcast or whatever they're going to do. But if you don't have a plan 
for how to create the space in your life for ongoing implementation and follow through based on whatever you learn from the thing, then the thing can't do you any good, right? So I would decide before you even buy the book, I would ask myself, okay, let's say I read this book and it really does inspire me that there's some different choices I can make for my life. There's a different path I can go down that can get me where I want to go. But realistically, because I, I know that nothing, you don't get something for nothing, I'm probably going to need to give it 10 or 20 hours a week. Okay, well, go ahead. Before you even buy the book, decide right now, where are you going to get 10 or 20 hours a week? Right? In other words, if you haven't decided that, which most people haven't, they get to the end of the book and they're like, well, I don't have time to do that. Right? So why even buy the book in the first place? Yeah. So that's the first thing. Figure <coughs> out where you're going to get the time and, and make the sacrifices now. And by the way, even if you don't read the book, you're still probably got 10 or 20 hours of low return, low yield activities in your life that you could cut out. And even if you just use the time to go to the gym, you'll still be better off doing something different with it, right? But at least now you know you have the opportunity to implement what's in the book. And then the second thing is we are all products of our environment. And it is very unlikely that we're going to read a book and then suddenly be so possessed with fortitude and clarity and drive and like we're suddenly we're made of Teflon that now our environment doesn't affect us. And whatever environment you were in before the book, if you're in the same environment after the book, you're probably still going to get the average of whatever the environment predicts for you on a day-to-day -day basis, which means, it, you know, and part of this is the sacrifice within the time. Like maybe you need to cut out some friends. Maybe you need to stop going to hang out at the bar. Maybe you need to turn off your satellite TV subscription, like your environment, all these inputs, all this stimulus, it's conditioning you about what to expect from yourself in life, right? Now, at the end of the book, like I was saying, when it says, what do I do now? I'll go ahead and give away the ending. So I have three things I give you at the end of the book. Uh, sorry, I'm literally pulling it up. It says it right here. Step one, subscribe. And this just means start feeding yourself different nourishment every day, different mental nourishment. Subscribe to Richard's podcast. Subscribe to Jeff's podcast. Subscribe to my social media. Subscribe to Chris and Liam. Just sign up for different inputs, different media, different stimulation, different nourishment for your mind than what most of the world wants to feed you because what most of the world gets is a product of what most of the world consumes, right? So that's step one. Step two is commit. Actually writing down specific definitive changes you're going to make in your life physically, personally, and professionally and use that space that you freed up to go out and do them. And by the way, I recommend that you post about them you, you know, tag me, tag Richard, create some accountability, tag somebody, try to get some visibility on the changes you're trying to make so that you'll be more embarrassed to give up and stop doing them. If people are watching, you're more likely to follow through, right? Yeah. That's step two. And then step three, if somebody chooses, join the movement. You know, I waited to write the book on how to go out in the world and become a successful entrepreneur until I had already built what I believe is the best platform in the world for supporting and teaching people how to do it. I founded Entra back in 2019. We've had over a quarter million students go through and learn how to become modern economy entrepreneurs. So, you know, go ahead. Don't be offended if you read the book. And then at the very end of the book, I make an invitation to say, hey, if you'd like some help in implementing what's in this book, you know, we've got a platform that has courses. It has coaching. It has software. It has live events. It has an app. It has everything you could possibly need to be supported as an entrepreneur, which by the way, also gives you a different environment in which to immerse yourself. Part of what I tried to accomplish with Entra wasn't to just give people all the, the tools that they might need to use, but to actually give them a completely new environment they can immerse in 
so that they'll start, they'll start being surrounded by different expectations and eventually it'll rub off on and they'll start having different expectations of themselves. So I think that this book, to your point about other books, other seminars, other self-help, whatever, I think this book probably better than anything that's ever been created before it. And I, and I know what I'm saying when I say that is uniquely poised to help people follow through and to deliver on its promise of what's possible for people, because it's not about the book. It's about what comes after the book. Yeah. And guys, I just want to say, I actually ordered Jeff's book. Um, I'm actually part of his entre um, organization. I'm waiting for my t-shirt to come in. So guys, I'm actually doing what he's talking about. So it's not just fluff. And Thank I've you. been following Jeff. Um, so last question I have for you. Uh, where do we find you? How do we support your mission? Where can we get your book? Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you can go to jefflearnerbook.com um, to order the book. And that'll branch off to Amazon and Barnes and Noble and wherever else. And there's a little preview. You can you can read a free preview of the book there. Uh, jefflearnerbook.com. My, my handle, you can see it on the screen there if you're, if you're watching this visually. It's jefflearnerofficial on all the social platforms. So YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, LinkedIn, everything. Um, I have a YouTube channel that gives a ton of free training. And then as far as Entra and, and supporting the movement, you know, the way, the way you support the movement, honestly, is kind of everything that we've talked about. I mean, one more person joining Entra isn't going to change what I eat for dinner. Like I'm very blessed, right? It, at this point, it really is about, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would, I would love for more people to join Entra and we have hundreds of people joining every day, but it's really about each person. It's about your mission. If you're listening, it's about your mission. It's about your life. It's about your, you know, unlocking your potential. And the way you, you support this movement of mine is to build whatever your movement is, to build your life, to, to build your positive impact in the world. And, and if Entra can be a support or a foundation to help you go do that, that's, that's wonderful. And I'm grateful to be a part of the journey. But honestly, at this point, I'm not looking to be paid. I'm looking to be paid forward. I just want people to go out and create amazing lives for themselves because it is, it is such a tragedy in, the, in this day and age to get to the end of a life and, and, and either have to be in denial that we had different choices or acknowledge that we did and we didn't make the most of them. Because in this world today, anybody can do just about anything they want if they'll just focus their time the right way and acquire the right skills. That's normally the last question, but I do have one more. Okay. Uh, one of my friend is uh, Simon Majumdar. He's one of the Iron Chefs, and he mm -hmm. was on here a while ago. And he said, "It's just because when since COVID happened, we've closed over a hundred thousand restaurants in the United States." Yeah, and so we have a lot of people that are unemployed, driving Uber, driving DoorDash, and so if you ask the average American to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if somebody's watching us and we ask them to take an actionable step they're more likely to do it. So if somebody is right now watching us struggling with their business, what can they do in the next 24 hours to start to get some help? Struggling with, so this is an, an already existing entrepreneur who's in a business and they're struggling. Yep. Well, I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a, a tactical answer and a strategic answer. Um, tactically, you can go watch my YouTube channel and I have over 800 free training videos. And there's a very good chance that whatever you're struggling with, one of my videos at least addresses, right? Um, 
And at least then you know you're getting it from somebody who, who actually walks the walk, right? Like I've built $100 million companies myself from the ground up as a bootstrapped entrepreneur with no special connections, no big bank loans, no Silicon Valley venture capital, right? Like I've done what people are trying to do in scaling a business. Um, so that would be tactical. From a strategic standpoint though, I typically find that business struggles, and this can be kind of hard to hear, but business struggles are usually related to a lack of sufficient clarity about what makes your business important. And what I mean by that is, you know, you, can, you might say, well, but I, I'm a plumber. Of course my business is important. Yeah, but why is your plumbing business important as opposed to just the general category of plumbing businesses? We all know why plumbing, why plumbers are important, but why is one plumber important? If you aren't crystal clear on what it is that you're offering to the market that is unique and distinct and tied to your personal experience and your unique value that you have in the world, then you're not a business. You're just a product or service commodity. And the only thing you can compete on is price, which is a race to the bottom. Usually when businesses are struggling, it's because they're not clearly communicating enough to the market the value of what makes them unique, which means they can't charge enough to not lose. And what I like to do is just start making videos. Start making videos that articulates to the world, this is who I am, this is what I offer, this is where it derives from, this is what makes it unique, this is what you can get from me that you can't get from anyone else in the world. And if you can't explain that for free to a camera, with the confidence to put it out on the internet, then are we really, you know, you're probably kidding yourself to think that you're going to build a whole thriving enterprise around it. And so that's, that's a very like, that's a free thing you can start doing right now to build, not only to get the clarity, but also to build the skills and the confidence in the delivery. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is why it's essential in the world. This is why I don't just have to be the cheapest guy. This is why I can charge what I believe it's worth and start speaking that into a, into a camera with the intention to post it for the world to see. And you'll get a lot of really, really honest feedback really, really fast. It'll help illuminate why your business is or isn't succeeding. I love it, Jeff. I just want to say thank you. I'm truly humbled and grateful for your friendship. I love everything you're doing. You have a beautiful family. You're thank truly you. blessed. Like I said, I've held many titles in my life, but father and husband are the best titles that I hold. And I know you feel the same way. Oh, but, truer, and, truer words were never spoke. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for having me. Yeah, I want to thank you, Christopher. I want to thank Liam OVF. Thank you so much. So guys, make sure you check out Jeff. Make sure you check out Antra. Make sure you check out his book. I'm, I'm so excited. I go to my mailbox looking for it every day because I can't wait for it to get here. Um, but guys, remember, like my t-shirt says, today I decide. Those are the three most important words in the English language. If you, if you want to be successful in life, make that decision and then act upon it. All right, guys, I love you. Happy Labor Day. And remember, vertical momentum, the only way to go is butt up. Love you guys. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.